Okay, here we go. Oh, here we go. Fresh. Head of man, first, top, beginning. Look upon my suffering and deliverance. I have not forgotten your law. Defend my cause and redeem it. Preserve my life according to your promise. Salvation is far. For they do not seek out your peace. Passion is great, O Lord. Preserve my life according to your law. Many are the foes who persecute Look on the faithless with loathing, for they do not obey your word. See how I love your precepts. My life, O oh Lord, to your love. All your words are true. To your righteous laws. Let's stop just in time, too. That's, yeah, all kinds of little things going on here. Uh, let's see. Pull this out. We'll get rid of that. And we got, uh, oh, wait a minute. Let me check this. Did I have anything there? No, I don't. Okay. Um, we got, uh, I thought I'd read you a letter. Just so you know, uh, when you, when the church is uh, operating, you find out things you just never even imagined. Pastor Charlie, first of all, I wanted to praise the Lord and thank you for the ministry to those around the world, especially to my mother. You are not just a blessing to her and all of your congregants, virtual and otherwise, but to me too. I know that you already know this, that the word you share reaches not just those you preach it to, but those close to them as well. Be encouraged that your love and spirit have reached me in federal penitentiary, miles away from you. Again, thank you. And he cited Galatians 6, 6 through 10, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And this is the most wonderful thing I could have had shared with me. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will. He also reap for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit reaps eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And he says, keep up the good fight and keep accumulating precious metals and lost souls. I will keep you in my prayers and would appreciate it if you would do the same. I can't give his name. Oh, I can. I can give his first name only. Watch out for bees, he says. <laughs> and praise the Lord that you won't be around for Revelation 9. No EpiPen in the world can handle that. He said, with brotherly love, Brian. So that's all I can tell of that. But that is such a wonderful thing when I received that. And uh, uh, it makes, you know, I, I was thinking just over the past week, I've been so tired. I've been so tired. I'm completely drained. And then you get something like that, and it just reinvigorates you. But, uh, yeah, good stuff. We'll have him in prayer. And, okay, let's go to the Lord's Prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to share your word. We thank you for this word, which is so precious, and it is a light all over the world, even in the dark places and even to those who are incarcerated for whatever reason. He's able to uh, hear the word, and he's also able to share the word with others. And so I would pray that you would give him the strength and the wisdom to do that so that there would be people in the, uh, the uh, prison with him that would hear the good word and that would be brought to a saving knowledge of Christ. And there is no unredeemable person on this planet. You redeemed Charlie Garrett. I know that's true. Lord, thank you for the uh, 
the chance to meet here with these wonderful people and those online. And we just thank you for your word, which tells us of your son and what you've done through him. What a wonderful gift it is to be in the presence of Christ all of our days. We thank you for him and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, really wonderful to get that letter. Yeah, it really is to know, you know, I mean, sometimes you wonder, am I doing any good out here? Are we doing any good? It's the, and then you get something like that and it tells you that, you know, it is doing, there is good. Um, okay, we might as well, I'm not going to read this day in Christian history because that kind of replaced it today. So we'll just go ahead. We're in 213 unless you want to go back. The good thing is I've been gone for two weeks. I only missed five verses. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, that's because we got a couple people here that just won't stop talking through the whole thing, and so we just... There we go. All right, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to verse 8. Verse 8, okay, 2-8. Okay, for it is by grace you have been saved. what? He's starting in 8. 2-8. For it is by grace you have been saved. Faith. And this, not from yourself, by works so that no one can boast, we created in Christ Jesus to good works, God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you were Gentiles, those called themselves, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that. That time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and forgiveness to the covenant of the promise of hope, of God, and the world. 13. But now in Christ Jesus, once far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That's mm. almost identical. I'm not even going to read it very close. Uh, 2.13. Here's, whoops, let me put this here. Let's see, the words, but now, but now, are set in contrast to the words of the previous verse. In former days, the Gentiles were without Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers of the covenants of the promise, having no hope, and five without God in the world. But now, Paul says, but now, in Christ Jesus, that means that we have moved positionally from Adam to him, to Jesus Christ. We are in Christ and participate in all those things which we were unable to partake in. Because of being in Christ, Paul says that you who were once far off, that's Paul's words again, you who were once far off, these words tell of how the Jews would speak of the Gentiles. They're over there, we're over here. The Jews had the temple where God dwelt, dwelt among them. They had the oracles of God which could speak to them. They had the feast days and the many other privileges which come through being near to God. Paul's word again, near. The Gentiles had none of these things and thus were, as Paul says, far off from them. However, even those far off were not completely forgotten by God. Isaiah told them this in Isaiah 57. Take you there. Gentiles are not far off from God and Isaiah says... Wow. Isaiah is such a wonderful book. My goodness. 
Isaiah 57, verse 1, the righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Through Christ there is now peace. Those who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, Paul says. It is the blood of Christ which is considered the seal that now guarantees us a new nearness to God. Earlier in Ephesians 1 verse 7, it said that we have redemption through his blood. This indicated that the blood is the means of the redemption, but it is also that which guarantees it as well. So you have the shed blood, that's the means that we are bought back to God through that uh, payment, and it guarantees, his shed blood is what guarantees our redemption as well. It is as if the blood of Christ has been sprinkled on us. We are cleansed and we are purified by it. Peter talks about that in his first epistle, is it? First epistle. Let me go there because I wish I had written that down. I didn't even think of it until right now, but it'll take a second to pull it up unless Burke gets it first. And uh, let's see here. I think it's probably one first chapter of the one, but uh, let's see. Yes, here it is right here. It says, um, uh, that wasn't it. 19. Okay, I was a little little short still. 13, 17, and okay, yes, I'm going to start back at 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. It is the means of the redemption as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. All right, so it's the means of the redemption, but it is also that which guarantees our redemption. And if Christ died for you, you know, once again, I, I hate to beat a dead horse, but uh, if Christ died for you, if he paid your sin debt, how on earth can you lose your salvation without diminishing what he has done? Because it would then be up to you to keep the salvation that he procured for you. And it actually diminishes the blood. It tramples the blood under one's feet to say that you can lose your salvation because of something you have done. All right. His blood is sufficient for all sin. It is as if the blood, I read that, okay, we are cleansed and purified by it. It is what provides the atonement or a propitiation for our sins, as is noted in Romans 3.25. Let me take you there really quickly. Romans 3.25. Oops, I just brought my notes all over the place, and so that's going to make a big mess, but whatever. Romans 3.25 says, um, uh, whom God has set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins, thank you, that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The word propitiation is a big word. It's one of those things that scares people. It shouldn't scare you at all. All it means is mercy seat. The propitiation is the same idea as the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. As a matter of fact, some translations will just say he was a mercy seat. It's the place where once a year the high priest would go into the uh, Holy of Holies, never without blood, and he would sprinkle the blood there on the mercy seat. And that would make the propitiation, the mercy between God. And the word propitious simply means happy. It restores a happy 
ness between God and the sinner by being forgiven through the, the blood that is shed, okay? In the Old Testament, it's typological. It's just the uh, uh, blood of bulls and goats and rams and those type of things, the different sacrifices in the temple. But in reality, every single one of them pointed to Christ. It is Christ's blood that now makes propitiation or happiness restored between us and God. Okay, so that's Romans 3.25. Therefore, it is what now allows us to draw near to God, regardless of physical location. The point Paul is making is that they were near to God because they had the temple, they had the sacrifices, they had all of you know those things in Israel, and everybody else is far off. They are far off from the covenant and the promises and all of those things. But with Christ, there is no temporal location. It doesn't matter where you are. You can be digging in a mine 3,000 feet down and have somebody tell you about the blood of Christ and God will redeem you. You can be flying on an airplane five miles high and God will redeem you if you accept the gospel. It doesn't matter where you are on this planet, whether it's day or night. It doesn't matter if you're in the north or the south. It makes no difference. There is no temporal location which will separate us from God hearing our confession of receiving Jesus Christ, okay? So, therefore, it is what now allows us to draw near to God, regardless of physical location, and this is revealed in the marvelously comforting words of Hebrews chapter 10, where he says, back one, okay, we're almost there, in Hebrews 10, verse 19, he says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. In other words, when he died, when his body was torn, that is the veil. The veil was picturing it. And so, you know, there are times where the typology of the Old Testament is very hard to figure out. It takes a lot of thought. It takes a lot of contemplation. You can't just make stuff up as you go. But there are some things that are as easy as pie to figure out because the Bible tells you what they are. When it says that the veil is his body, you don't need to go any further. The veil is his body, and you don't need to find any other typology in the veil. Now, you can find it, obviously, in the colors and the veil and all that kind of stuff. What is the meaning of that? But the veil itself, as a whole, is a picture of his flesh, okay? And the same thing is true with, like, um, incense. Incense in the Bible is explained what it is, and so you don't need to look for other typology in incense. Once again, though, incense is made of things, and if you go back through the ingredients of the incense in the Old Testament, every one of them points to Christ, and you have to figure that typology out. But the incense itself, anybody? Prayer. Prayer. That's it. You don't need to go any further than that with incense. You don't need to uh, find some other spooky analogy God has given in his word, and so it's done. Okay, so that's the important thing is when you're reading uh, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and you're thinking, how does this point to Christ? You have to be very careful, but you never want to overstep the typology that has been explicitly stated in the Bible, okay? So the Bible, the, the uh, veil is his flesh. The Bible says that, and it says that we, I'll read it again just so you see what, uh, oh, I've already closed it. It doesn't matter, um, that we have access to the most holy place through his f- flesh. That's a picture in the Old Testament that once we come to Christ, we go through what he did, his sacrifice, and we are now given access to God. And, you know, the typology of that is very clearly seen in the Gospels. When Christ died, it says, you know, the the earth was covered in darkness, and then Christ died, and when he died, something happened. What is it? A lot of things happened, but one thing in particular... 
the curtain was torn from top to bottom, it said. Okay, now the description of it by, I think it's Josephus, I got it written somewhere, is that this thing was a handbreadth thick. Okay, this is very, very heavy veil. It's also, uh, I think it was like, my numbers are not going to be right, so just don't make a squiggle in your brain, but I'm giving you an about. It was like 25 feet tall and 60 feet wide or something. It's this giant veil. Okay, it was made, um, the women of Jerusalem would make it and they would make a new one every certain number of years. And anyway, I've got this written down. I've got it in one of my sermons from years and years ago. But the point being is that this thing was torn from top to bottom. It could not have been done by man because man isn't that tall. Okay, there wasn't a Nephilim in there or anything crazy like that. So uh, uh, now there is a record in some Jewish writings and this is quite possible if you think about it, is that when the earthquake happened, there was also a breaking of the lintel that was above the uh, veil, and that lintel actually broke it. I don't care if it happened that way or not. It makes no difference. It happened at the moment Christ died, and if God wanted to use a broken lintel with an earthquake, which he set into place, that's fine. That veil was torn, and no human being could have done it. It was God himself that orchestrated that veil to be a picture of Christ and full access to God is now available. You no longer have to use the temple sacrifices and the temple, uh, you know, uh, high priest and all of that kind of stuff in order to have access to God. It is open. The most holy place is now accessible to anybody who is willing to come through the sacrifice of his son. That is the lesson that we get from, from that particular picture in the Gospels. Okay, so um, life application. Excuse me. If you have received the work of Christ, Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed. Your sins are atoned for. Peace with God has been restored, and you have access into the very dwelling place of the Almighty. As this is so, what should you fear? I mean, what is there to fear? If you have full access to God, and I, I'll tell you, uh, I was talking to Jody earlier that uh, this Saturday I can't go to mission work, okay? And the reason why is because I had a person that I grew up with. Most of my life I've known her. Uh, growing up on Siesta Key, the south end of the Key, there were at any time maybe five people. I'm sorry, five children. Okay, the bus would go down, bus number 44. It would go all the way down to Turtle Beach. It would turn around. Heidi lived down there. It would pick her and her brother up, and then it would come back and pick us up. And so we always knew the bus was coming. We never missed the bus because you heard it drive by. You know it's coming back in about eight minutes. So we never missed the bus. We had no excuse to miss the bus. But um, uh, they finally moved, and then they came back, and they've been in here and there. But uh, for the most part, there were very few children on the south end of the key, and the three of us were pretty much it most of the time. But we did get to know Heidi and her brother, and uh, Heidi... Uh, Later, she moved off to uh, Atlanta. She joined Proscaneo Ministries up there, which means worship ministries. And uh, she uh, did that for some years. And then she came back and she's been in the church a couple of times. But she got a job at the mall that I take care of, the drugstore there. And they loved her. They said, this lady is unbelievable. She's such a faithful Christian. She just wonderful person. About a month and a half ago, she came out. And she said, would you pray for me? I said, yeah, what's up? She said, well, I've got a spot on my my breast and I need uh I need to uh, uh have it looked at and then the next thing I heard just a week later or maybe two weeks later the girl that she worked with I said where's Heidi I said what happened she said well, she's she's got cancer and she had to quit and within just a couple weeks she's gone 
I mean, that quickly. So you don't know your last day. But the fact is that she knew her Redeemer, and there is no doubt where she is going. And she, her life itself is a faithful witness to the people that will go to that funeral on Saturday that aren't saved. I can tell you that 100% that they will be evaluating their own lives, but they will probably be doing it in, in relation to the faith that she professed because she professed it all the time, always. I, I am not. I, I, I'm not performing any function. I'm just going. She was a friend of mine for many, many, many long years. Like I say, I was probably five when I met her the first time. So, um, and we've just kind of been friends over the years, but uh, uh, just a, a really wonderful person. But and so, let me read that again. If you've received the work of Christ, you have been redeemed. Your sins are atoned for. Peace with God has been restored, and you have access into the very dwelling place of the Almighty. What should you fear? Well, Heidi didn't fear. I mean, you know, nobody wants to go through a painful death, okay? I got to tell you, if the bees had taken me a couple weeks ago, it would have been great because it was quick and, and it was painful. It was really painful, but it was really quick. But I got to tell you that nobody wants to go through a long, dragged out death. And I, I know the stress of going through physical pains and trials and emotional pains in this life and all of the other things that we face. I understand those things. And we're not immune from them. There can be, even through those things, joy, okay? And that is the joy of knowing that whatever happens, we will be with Christ, and he will give us a new body that will never have these problems again, ever, all right? Okay, uh, 2.14. For he himself is our peace, yep. who has made the two one, destroyed the barrier, fighting wall of Okay, this one's written much different, but it says the same thing. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. So you can see the same idea, but it's just completely differently written. Paul has been describing the woeful state of the Gentiles for the past few verses. In verse 13, we then read, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, in explanation of this, he says, for he himself, Jesus, he himself is our peace. The words he himself are emphatic. Normally, you know, some translations won't do that. They, they will just say he or whatever, but the Greek will read, you know, one and two after another, just like that, he himself. And when they put that in there, it should be a clue to you that there is an emphasis in the Greek as well. Okay, so that's why I'm saying that. The words he himself in the Greek, they are emphatic. It is through Christ alone that this peace comes about. The idea of peace as given by the Lord simply permeates scripture. For example, from the Old Testament, we can read this. I just took you to Isaiah 57. I'll take you there again. And it says there in Isaiah 57, verse 19, whoops, 57, 19, I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near says the Lord, and I will heal him. Then, at the birth of Christ, the heavenly host proclaimed. Let me take you here to Luke chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Always, okay, we got that. Luke 2, and let's, oops, a little too far there. Luke 2, 14, I'll say start at 13, and suddenly there was the angel, um, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. 
Okay, and then as Christ was finishing his earthly ministry, we read this in John chapter 14. You probably already know what I'm going to say. Burke, you can blurt it out if you want. Let's see here. Okay, well, I'm going to hide it from you then. We're going to say here it's verse 14 and 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I thought you were going to blurt it out. I said, Burke's got this one, but it's all right. You let me down once. Don't let it happen again. <laughs> Paul's words, however, show that not only does Christ grant peace, he is our peace. He uses the word peace in an abstract sense to show that it defines him and his work rather than merely being a result of what he has done. He is our peace. Okay? He is the source of it and the continuation of it. In him, we now have this peace. As I said, if you know Christ, why would you worry about anything that can happen? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not saying that it's not right to worry. Paul does say, uh, be anxious for nothing and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, what does Paul do? He worries. He says, my great concern over, uh, that I have over all of the churches. You know, he's laying in bed at night saying, oh, how are they? Are they, are they falling away? So it is natural for human beings to feel worry. And what we do, not that we don't feel worry, but when we do, we cast it on him. Cast our cares on him for he cares for you. Okay, so there's there's a thing going on that if you learn to appreciate it, you can be in the situation of stress. Nobody says that you're not feeling pain when you're in physical pain, right? But you can take that physical pain and you can say, Lord, I just want to hand this over to you. Okay, you're still suffering through it, just like you are with anything else, but you have the presence of the Lord with you. So if you can just get into that frame of mind, your life will be a lot better off when difficult times happen, when, you know, things happen in your life that aren't comfortable or that aren't happy. He is the one to hand those things to. And of course, he's given us each other for fellowship as well, so that we can talk to each other, we can lay out our hearts to each other over things that happen, and we can get it behind us. So. In him we have this peace. And next, to further define this, he says, who has made both one. This is speaking of the division between Jew and Gentile, which was especially highlighted in verse 11 and 12, which I'll take you back there. It says, um, in him also we having, a, oh, I'm in chapter one. You got to be in chapter two to get the right 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So there was this division between Jew and Gentile, which no longer exists in Christ. Here, Paul uses the term both in the neuter gender. By doing this, he shows that these states simply existed. They were facts concerning the nature of the state, Jew and Gentile. There was no peace. There was no accord between the two. But in Christ, we are made one. Peace exists because of the work of Jesus Christ. Both, the word both, showing a distinction, is replaced with one, showing peace. So he said both, and then he says one. We were, and now we are. As a secondary note, it is also true that Christ is our peace between God and us. It's not just between Jew and Gentile. It's not just between people that were once warring. Um, I probably told the story before um, where I, I may get some of the details wrong, but um, uh, 
it was a Billy Graham crusade, and he had a guy that he spoke about called the amazing, or the, uh, he didn't use the word amazing, he was the, uh, he was a German, that thing's going off and driving me crazy, um, he was a German guard in World War II, and he was a terror, and one of the people, I don't know if it was a Jew or a, uh, a uh, you know, a prisoner from the, the uh, allies, anyway, uh, the terrible dunker, that's what they called him, and the terrible dunker was brutal to the people that were under him, and after the war, somebody came up to him, this is after, you know, many years, and he said, you were my guard during the war, you were the terrible dunker, and he said, I want to forgive you for that, and he said, how could you do that? I was terrible to you people, how could you forgive me? He says, well, in my own self, I can't, but because I've met the Lord Jesus, I can and I do. And apparently had such an effect on him that it converted him as well. And I've heard the same thing about uh, Japanese. With, uh, Corey Tamboom uh, as well. So when somebody has the ability to express their understanding of the nature of what Christ did, and they can take that and turn it around towards somebody that's persecuted them, it makes a great difference sometimes in people's life. So we want to attempt to do that. I'm not very good at that kind of thing. I can tell you that I don't know if I would have gone up to the amazing dunker or the uh, terrible dunker and and uh, been very nice to him. I, I just don't know. It, you, you just have to be in the position at the time and know. But I know my limitations, and I'm not a very, very, uh, you know, I'm a personality is what I'm trying to say. Anyway, um, let's see here. Uh, the term both and one, I got that piece exists because of his worth. Both showing a distinction is replaced with one showing peace. And that's a secondary note. I said this. It is true that Christ is our peace between God and us. Where there was once enmity and strife, there is now love and contentment between the two. But this is not the intent of Paul's words here. That is well described by Paul elsewhere, though. Okay? In this verse, he is dealing with the issue of individual's status before God, meaning Jew and Gentile. It's not about our relationship with God. It's the status between the two. This is fully evidenced by the words that Christ has broken down the middle wall of separation. Paul's words, Christ has broken down the middle wall of separation. This middle wall refers to the wall which was in the temple in Jerusalem beyond which no Gentile could pass. There was the court of the Gentiles, and then from that point on, no Gentile could enter. Okay, Flavius Josephus indicates that it bore a sign which proclaimed death to any Gentile who passed it. This is what was referred to in Acts chapter 28. I'll take you there, and you'll see that particular... Uh, I'm in the book of Acts in my morning reading right now, and wow, is it just a great book. It just, it's so wonderful. As long as you take it in the proper context, you know, I mean, people take the book of Acts and they misapply it, and I'll talk about that in a second, but for right now, verse 27, now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia... Seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Okay, obviously Paul didn't take Greeks in there, but they thought he had, for they had previously seen Tropimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So, there's a defilement of the temple because these people had not been purified according to the law of Moses. That was um, 21 verses. I started in 27 through 29, I think. But, uh, 
Yeah, chapter 21. So um, the book of Acts, what I was going to say before I go on, is a descriptive account of what occurred in the establishment of the church. The book of Acts does not prescribe anything. There's maybe three verses in the entire book of Acts that you can say that is directed to telling us to do something. Now, there are things you can infer from the book of Acts, obviously, because there are people that are baptized all the way through the book of Acts, both Jew and Gentile, and so we know that it was custom to baptize. Okay, it doesn't prescribe it, but it is something you can infer from there. But as far as descriptive passages, that is all that the book of Acts is. It simply describes what happened. It doesn't say this is the standard, this is what is to happen. You're supposed to speak at tongues at this point in your Christian walk. You're supposed to do this at this point in your Christian walk. You know, um, uh, one of the things I was reading this morning is that uh, Paul is walking by and the guy, he's uh, been uh, lame from birth. And Paul, seeing that he had faith, said, rise and walk, okay? Well, we're not supposed to spend the first half of our life lying there, not walking, okay? But that's the, that's the end result of taking the book of Acts in a prescriptive manner, is it says, well, what's different than that verse there? What's different than that verse there? What's different than that verse there? They're all just describing what's happening. Nobody is saying you're supposed to lay there until an apostle comes by and heals you. Okay, that's crazy. But they'll take another verse that's just descriptive, and they'll use that to prescribe something for conduct within the church. Don't do that. It, once you understand the book of Acts, which I will be doing a commentary on it starting this year, because I'll be finishing Revelation soon. I typed Revelation 17, 20 or something this morning. And so uh, uh, we'll be done with that very soon. And then from there, I'm going to do the book of Acts and just follow along day by day. And you will learn that it is one of the most marvelously structured books you can imagine. You won't believe some of the patterns and parallels that are in it. And also you will learn to properly handle the book of Acts so that when you go to a new church, you will know when they were taking a descriptive account, and they are making it prescriptive, and thus creating a doctrine which is not taught by Paul in, or any of the apostles in the New Testament. It's simply telling you what happened at the establishment of the church and things that are no longer necessary. Okay, don't want to belabor that point, but uh, let's see here. Um, so that was uh, that's what was being referred to in Acts 21, is that there were Gentiles in the temple area that should not have been there, they can go only as far as the court of the Gentiles and no further, and the penalty for doing that would be death. Uh, by supposing that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple, it would have been considered a defilement of the temple. Once again, the Jews are circumcised on the eighth day. That was a requirement. The Jews had to be uh, considered clean in certain ways that a Gentile never would have been clean. They had to eat certain foods that would have defiled them on and on. All of these things were considered absolutely uh, you know, not, uh, what's the word? You're not, not negotiable. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for too. They're not negotiable in any way, shape or form because they anticipated the holiness of Christ. And so when you were defiled and you would bring that defilement into an area that should not have been, you were violating the typology of Christ. And so you, that's why they were so strict about that. Now we don't have that anymore. You can have a festering wound on you and you can come into church. It doesn't make any difference because the church is not defiled by having uh, an oozing wound, which in the Old Testament would, or any of the other unclean things that were prescribed all the way through the book of Leviticus no longer will defile the church because Christ has come. He has purified us through his shed blood. What that only pictured is fulfilled in Christ. 
we are completely clean. And this is just flesh. The point is that in the Old Testament, the flesh was supposed to look forward to holiness. It no longer does in the New Testament. Flesh actually looks to unholiness. It is a spiritual purification which we have received from Christ. So you want to make sure that you understand that because, you know, of course, the Hebrew Roots Movement people come in here and they'll tell you all of these things that you need to do with your walk. You can't eat pork and you can't do this and you can't do that and you have to do this and you have to observe that. And then you can simply ask them, well, are you currently, you know, in this state of womanhood? Because if you are, you shouldn't be here. And obviously they'll say, well, that's none of your business. Well, they're doing exactly the opposite of what they're telling you to do. Okay, or if they have, oh, you've got a, you've got a, a big ulcer on your uh, cheek, and you're not allowed to come into the church. Well, how dare you? It, it's a hypocritical look at the, what Christ has done, because the flesh counts for nothing. Okay, it's what Christ has done for us that makes us holy. Okay, so um, life application. Well, no, wait. Where the Jews could go, the Gentiles were excluded. However. In Christ, that middle wall of separation no longer exists. Gentiles are considered on exactly the same level as Jews because of the work of Christ. Okay, and I better say this before we go on. Jews are Jews. Gentiles are Gentiles. That never changed and it never will change. We are not becoming Jews when we come to Christ. We are not the replacement Jews that got rid of Israel of the Old Testament or any of that kind of thing. Paul never makes that distinction or he never uh yeah he never makes that a uh point of his theology by saying that the church has replaced israel or that we are now jews or anything like that there's never a time that you will find that in paul's writings or anybody else in the new testament you're not going to see it in james you're not going to see it in peter you're not going to see it in john you're not going to see it in jude okay or in the book of hebrews you're not going to see that because it does not exist a jew remains a jew and a gentile remains a gentile Okay, life application. Too often we see people continuing to make a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Not a difference, a distinction, as if Jews are lifted up as having a special importance and favor with God within the church. That is incorrect. In Christ, all are on the same level, even as far as access to the throne of God itself. Okay, now, once again, we could go back to Galatians, which we've already done. If you want to analyze that verse, just go back and watch the video on that. But he says, uh, there is now no uh, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, blah, blah, Scythian or uh, Greek or whatever. He makes all these, these differences, okay? And he says, there is now none of those in Christ Jesus. And so people say, well, see, women can be pastors, okay? No, there is a distinction, but no difference. I'm sorry, there are differences, but there is no distinction. What he is talking about is that every person in here is either a male or a female. There's no other choice, okay, despite what they say in the outside world nowadays. There are either males or females, and I can very easily identify the difference between them, okay? So there are differences, but there's no distinction in Christ. Jew and Gentile, okay? A Jew is a Jew, a Gentile is a Gentile. A bond person is a bond person. A free person is a free person. Those things don't change just because you come to Christ. But in Christ, there is no distinction. So we need to make sure that we understand that because when Paul says there's now no Jew nor Gentile, it means that there are still Jews and Gentiles. What do you okay? Mean there is equal that's a good way of saying there's equality. We are all equal in Christ. Okay? Just no favoritism, just the way the Constitution wrote about people in this nation, which is no longer true, but that's the way it's supposed to be. 
the idea of equity. Absolutely. Today, even the Bible talks about equality. Absolutely right. Yes. So we are all one in Christ, but we all have our own station that we are in. Some people get to live in big mansions. Some people live in holes in the ground, but they are all one in Christ. Okay. 2.15. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making... Okay, it's close, but a little different. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So they're close. This verse <clears throat> brings in a question upon which scholars are divided. Is Paul's words, is having abolished in his flesh the enmity, speaking of the middle wall of separation of the previous verse, or separation of the previous verse, or of the law of commandments contained in the ordinances? Which is, which is it speaking of? Okay, I'll read that again. It brings in a question. Scholars are divided. Is having abolished in his flesh the enmity, speaking of the previous verse, the middle wall of separation, or of this verse, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances? Here is how they read together. Remember that the words that is are inserted by the translators, okay? For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and he has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. The answer, when looking at Paul's thoughts, is that it is speaking of both. The wall of separation was there in the temple because they were the stewards of the law. The second explains the first. Christ has made us, meaning Jew and Gentile, both one. The way he did this was breaking down that middle wall. And that middle wall stood because of the law which set Israel apart from the nations. Everybody understand that? There's a middle wall of separation in the temple. Anybody that is of the law can now go past that middle wall. Anybody who is not cannot. So it's speaking actually of both of them because when Christ came, he fulfilled the law. He destroyed the law. When he said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, I probably shouldn't have used the word destroy. Somebody's going to email me about that. But he, the, the point is that the law is done. It is annulled. If you want to use the word destroyed, it means basically the same thing. It is over. Okay. But when he said, I did not come to destroy the law, he said, people will stop with that. And they'll say, see, we're still under law. That didn't finish the verse, did it? I came to fulfill. He fulfilled the law. He didn't come to, I'm, I'm going to destroy this law. The point that he was making wasn't that he was, I'm getting rid of this law, okay? And so uh, people are going to be free from the law because I'm saying you don't need to do it. That would be destroying the law in that sense. That's not what he did. He came and he lived the law and he fulfilled it. And when he died, then it was destroyed. In his body, it is fulfilled. He is the embodiment of that law. So it is destroyed, not by his active action of, okay, we're just going to get rid of this and we're going to do something else, which is the point that he was making to the people of Israel. I will fulfill the law. And in my fulfillment, it will be annulled. It will be set aside. It will be obsolete. Whatever term you want to use, it means it's done. It is done. Okay. But the answer to the question is that his fulfillment of the law also at the same time did away with the temple. 
It did away with the need for the sacrifices. It didn't away with the need for the wall of separation. Because if you don't have a temple, you don't have a wall of separation. He is the true temple, the naos, meaning the most holy place. All right, so that's the answer there. The way he did this was breaking down that middle wall, and that middle wall stood because of the law which set Israel apart from the nations. The law is now abolished. The word in Greek is katargel. It properly means idle down, rendering something inert or completely inoperative. The law no longer has any effect. It's like a car that's sitting there that's been there for 45 years with weeds growing through it. It's not going to run. It's inoperative. That's what it is. It is done away with. Let me see. It's being of no effect, totally without force, completely broken down, done away with, caused to cease, and therefore abolish, make invalid, abrogate, which means brought to naught, to make idle or inactive. That's all helps word studies. You think they could find a couple more uh, uh, explanations for us? Destroyed. Destroyed. There you go. But not in the sense that he is destroying it without fulfilling it. He is fulfilling it. Yeah, I just want to make sure because somebody will say, well, he said I didn't come to destroy the law. Understand what he means when he says destroy. He's talking about prior to his fulfillment of it. It's done. It is abolished, made invalid, abrogated, brought to naught. Go ahead. Yes. And, and he. Completed. That's right. And in him. It's complete. It is complete. That's you why. choose that's not right. be in him. Yep. You can go back to the law. Nobody has ever. Like or you can trust in his fulfillment of it. It's that no, simple. Right. Yeah, just... That's why it is. anyone who goes back to the law, stop. Like that. You're obviously saying, I don't want to be in Christ anymore. That's right. I want to be under I can law. do it better than he did. That's all it's saying. It's just a, a it's an intergalactic or a interdimensional slap in God's face. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. Anyway, it is the law that Paul implicitly and explicitly states many times in his letters, which is obsolete. The law is obsolete. The author of Hebrews states it explicitly three times and implicitly another dozen or so as well. Can anybody tell me the three explicit references? If you can, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you a Maserati for, to take home for tonight. It's in Hebrews 7, 8, and 10. Well, you got the right chapter. What's the verse? Seven eighteen, eight thirteen, ten nine. Yeah, I, nine. Read nine fifteen. Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's seven eighteen, eight thirteen, and ten nine. What is the one you just said? Nine fifteen. I wanna... I wrote it down. A direct from. Okay. Well, I want to see what nine fifteen says here because uh, uh, that may be a fourth one that I've had in here and I just don't use it. The what? How much more shall? Through the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 914, is that what you said? No, oh, 915. Okay, and for this reason, yeah. Oh, Burke already said it. He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So it's that's one of the implicit ones. And there are a lot more implicit ones. The explicit are uh, 718, 813, and 10-9. That's right. Okay. I get to drive my Maserati home by myself today. Great. Okay, let's see here. Um, his fulfillment of it. Uh, the Bible. Oh, this is something I was talking to somebody about just a day ago. Isn't that funny? The Bible does not make a distinction between the moral and ceremonial aspects of this law. 
The moral law means like thou shall not kill, thou shall not steal, thou shall not, and all of the moral laws. And then you have a ceremonial law. Take this lamb and slaughter it in this way, sprinkle the blood there, etc. Or a ceremonial part of the law would be this person has a festering boil and he is not allowed to uh, be touched or anything until it's healed and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you've got ceremonial law and you've got moral law, okay? And the Bible does not make a distinction between the moral and ceremonial aspects of this law. The reason why I point that out is because you will hear that very often in commentators, and you'll hear it, you know, many times throughout their writings, is that the moral law of, the moral aspect of the law of Moses is still in effect. The ceremonial aspect of the law of Moses is not in effect. I've seen that from almost every commentator that I have read, almost every single one of them, people that I read every single week to do my sermons. That is incorrect. Do you think they're well, that's that's what they're scared of. They're scared that they that people will exercise license. In other words, well, if we don't have a moral law, then we can just do whatever we want in Christ. So, but that is that is true. That may be why they say this. But the problem with that is that the New Testament epistles make no distinction between a moral law and a ceremonial law. They say the law is annulled, the law is set aside, the law is obsolete. It is done. Okay, Paul says the law is nailed to the cross. Okay, does that mean just the ceremonial aspect of the law? It means the law of Moses with everything that is involved in the law of Moses is done. And the way that you get this through their heads, because people get all scared and they say, well, it says you can't kill. And well, we can't go killing people in the New Testament. Nobody says you can't. Okay, yeah, murder for, well, yeah, murder. Okay, but the point now you've got me off my train of thought. Yeah, that's um, uh, what. They will do is they will have that panic in them, and they'll say, "Well, you know, if you're saying there's no moral aspect to the New Testament, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the moral law of the law of Moses is done, just like the ceremonial law. And the way that you get them to understand this is you say, "What day do you go to church?" And they all say Sunday, unless they're you know Seventh Day Adventists, and then they're crazy anyway. Okay, what day do you go to church? And they will say to you on Sunday. And you say, then you've just proven your own point is wrong because the Sabbath was Saturday. And if you were in church on Sunday, because that's a part of the moral law, then you are violating the moral law of Moses. And then all of a sudden they start thinking, oh, I guess there's something I'm not thinking through properly. Is that the New Testament gives us moral law. And so we don't need the moral law of the law of Moses because we are given the moral law within the new covenant. And when Paul says no sexual immorality, he's repeating what the law of Moses already says. And when he says don't murder, he's repeating what the law of Moses says. But the law of Moses is done. Ceremonial and moral law is done. Okay? Because if it's not, we are still under the law. Isn't there a distinction between a command and a... Well, yeah, I mean, we can be given a command. Paul will use the term command in the New Testament, and you'll also say that he'll, he'll give things that we are supposed to do in the New Testament, okay? But the difference between that, whatever Paul says, he says, don't murder. He says, don't kill. He says, you know, uh, murder and uh, don't commit adultery and whatever, okay? He says, and whatever other commandments, okay? Paul gives us those things, and he tells us to not do those things. What is the difference between that and the law of Moses? There's one difference. 
If we are under the law of Moses, we are being imputed sin. And if we are not under the law of Moses, we are not being imputed sin. Go read 2 Corinthians uh, 5.19, okay? In Christ, we are not being imputed sin. We're not supposed to do those things. We're told not to do those things. But if we do those things, we will not be imputed sin. Because if we could be imputed sin, we would lose our salvation the day that we committed our first sin, which means three seconds after we came to Christ, okay? So please make sure that you understand that distinction. There is no difference between a moral and a ceremonial law in the law of Moses when it says the law is annulled. The entire law is annulled. We get our doctrine, we get our conduct for life, and we get our non-imputation of sin knowledge from the New Testament. As long as we do that, we will be in the right spot. But if we keep putting ourselves back under the law of Moses, we're no different than the Hebrew Roots Movement. We're just picking and choosing different aspects of it. Okay? It's exhortation. Yeah, well, exhortation is saying, I really want you to do this. It's not a command. An exhortation is, brother, I exhort you to reconcile with your brother. Okay? That's an exhortation. He's not commanding you to do that, but it's the right thing to do. Okay? And when you have a command, it's something I'm telling you, you are not to do this. If you don't do it, you know, that's your choice, and you're the one that's going to lose rewards, but you're not going to lose rewards over something you're being exhorted to do. You know, Burke, I exhort you to uh, whatever. You know, he can say, well, I'm not going to do that, and there's no loss of rewards. I wouldn't think unless it's something that is an exhortation out of the word itself, which we know we should be doing. But the point is imputation of sin. As long as you can remember that, then you will understand why we are not under the law of Moses in any way, shape, or form. Because if we are, even in one precept of the law of Moses, then we are under every precept of the law of Moses, and we are being imputed sin. Or the word impute means simply, I am counting that to your, I'm crediting that to your account. And so a good way of uh, paraphrasing it is the way the NIV does, where it says, not counting your sins against you. Okay, that's what imputation is, or non-imputation. Okay, the Bible does not make a distinction between the moral and ceremonial aspects of this law. They are a united whole. Having said that, those precepts, which are, here it is, restated in the new covenant, are binding. Hence, we are not to commit adultery, we're not to murder, and so on. However, any precepts which are not repeated under the new covenant are completely gone like the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is never repeated as a command within the New Testament. In fact, Paul doesn't just say it's not a commandment. He argues against it, like four times, okay? The Sabbath is done. We are not required. And why is that? I mean, yes, it was a law under the law of Moses. It was the fourth commandment. But what was the Sabbath originally called? In Well, no. What there, There's a term that was used of the Sabbath. It's the same term that is used of circumcision, and it predates the law of Moses. I'm sorry, yeah, the, uh, the uh, law of Sinai. It is a sign. A sign is something that points to something else. God just codified it into the Mosaic law, okay? But it was a sign before it was a command to Israel. And once the sign is fulfilled, you don't need that sign anymore. The sign was that Christ is our rest. Okay, the sign of circumcision is that Christ is our cutting of the sin nature. The sign only points to something else. 
So they predated the law of Moses. They were codified into the law of Moses, but they are no longer required. And as I said, just as Paul argues against circumcision all the way through the book of Galatians, he argues against observance of the Sabbath. He does it in Romans 14. He does it in Colossians chapter 2. He does it in, um, well, uh, again in Colossians 2. Um, uh, why are you observing days and months and years? I think that was Colossians 2. He does it in the book of Galatians. And certainly Paul wrote Hebrews, although we can't say that because it's not signed, but uh, he does it also in the book of Hebrews by saying in Hebrews 4, 3, now we who believe to enter that rest. That's right. We are in our rest. Christ is our rest. And so we don't need a Sabbath. It was just a sign anticipating the glory that we would receive in Christ. Okay, so um, where was that? Ceremonial laws. Oh, I, and it comes right here. However, any precepts which are not repeated under a new covenant are abolished. The Sabbath is such a law. Here it is. Rather, belief in Christ brings us into God's rest. Hebrews 4, 3. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. In abolishing the commandments, Paul's words, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, in, abolish, in abolishing those, Jesus has created, as Paul goes on, in himself, one new man from the two, thus making peace. The dividing, the dividing wall is torn down now, and in Christ we are one. This does not mean that the Jews are no longer Jews. I said this before. Here it is again. And Gentiles are no longer Gentiles. This means that in relation to Christ and concerning salvation based on that relation, they are on the same level. Gentiles are now no longer alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They are now in Christ, having hope and sharing in the riches of the true God while in this world. Life application. Paul explicitly states that the law is abolished. Do not be duped by people that take one or two verses completely out of context and then tell you that you are obligated to adhere to the precepts of the law. Abolished means just that. Our salvation comes by faith in Christ's completion of the law. End of story. Okay, if I'm angry at somebody and I send them an email and I don't want to show that I'm angry, but I am always just abbreviate that. I'll say E-O-S. And they have no idea what I'm saying, but I'm saying end of story. I'm not going to discuss that anymore. So if you ever get an E-O-S, you know you pushed one of my buttons. Yeah. Okay. 2.16. And in this one body reconcile both of them to God, by which he put to death their hostility. Okay. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. They just took a couple different uh, adjectives or whatever and synonyms. Yeah. Okay. 2.16. This verse explains and builds on the thought of the previous verse. Together they read, I'll read the whole thing, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death the enmity. There should no longer be enmity between Jew and Gentile because we are all one in Christ. But the, the whole plate was turned upside down because the Jews rejected Christ. And now the enmity remains because we, I'll say something that's going to upset lots of people in the sermon on Sunday, and I don't care, okay? It's what I believe, and I'm going to say it, and I'm not going to say what it is now, but 
we use terms in this nation that we don't think through properly. And one of those terms that I'm going to say that a pastor should never say in the pulpit is this term. And when you get to there in the sermon on Sunday, you'll know what I'm talking about. We need to be careful how we use our words, especially in relation to things like that. The Jews did what? They rejected Christ. Not, not all of the Jews, but as a nation, as a collective, and they are accountable as a collective. If you followed along in the Deuteronomy sermons, he makes that quite clear because he goes from the single singular to the plural and back to the singular in a single verse sometimes, showing that they are individually accountable to the Lord, but as a nation, they are accountable to the Lord, okay? That is unlike anybody else on the planet. Everybody else on the planet is individually accountable to the Lord and nothing else. Don't get me wrong, nations are accountable to the Lord, but for salvation, there is the salvation of the individual, and there is also the salvation of Israel. And that hasn't happened yet because they rejected Christ, and there is an enmity which exists. And Paul speaks about that in the book of Romans. He says, uh, let me tell you there, just so you, we'll go to Romans 9 through 11. I don't think I'm going to read the whole thing, but we'll see if we can find what he says there. Um Oh, what is Israel? They have stumbled. Um, first fruit, you are branches. Let's see, you were cut off. I do not desire brethren. Okay, Concern, here it is. Uh, Romans eleven twenty eight. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies. Enemies for your sake. But concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When he says that they are enemies, for your sake, he says that in relation to what? Concerning the gospel. They're enemies of us concerning the gospel. Okay? We are not to do anything except evangelize the Jews. We're not to accept their religion. We're not to say they're going to heaven. We're not to do any of those things. And that's the problem with John Hagee is that he doesn't evangelize the Jews, and he says they're saved through the Old Covenant. That is incorrect. They are enemies because of the gospel, and the gospel is based on what? The work of Jesus. That's right. They have rejected Jesus, so we need to be very careful to understand that. They are, I support Israel 100%. You're not going to find a greater supporter of Israel, and yet I do not support the ideology of the Israelites, any of them unless they have come to Christ. Now, they're saved Jews, and we're one. But if they are not in Christ, then they are just like the rest of the world. But they have a greater accountability because they have the national salvation, which was rejected. They are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Okay? And here he goes down a little bit. 30. For as you were once disobedient to God, because we didn't have Christ, yet have now obtained mercy, because we have Christ, through their disobedience, even these, yes, even these, so these also have now been disobedient, the Jews, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. In other words, we're supposed to be out there evangelizing the Jews. We're not supposed to be having them in the church and saying, you can go to heaven if you just keep observing the law of Moses. We've got to be evangelizing these people. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And he will have mercy on Israel. And that's why we need to support Israel. That's why we need to pray for them when they're being bombed by their enemies. Thousands of bombs. And mom sent me an email a while ago and she said, you know, I'm hearing about all of these Palestinian deaths on the TV. I haven't heard about any Jews. Nobody's mentioning it, that they're being bombed. And you know what? The one person in the New York Times, I think it was, said, 
Iron Dome is too effective. Yeah, too effective. Too effective. So the, 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 the thought is, let's just get rid of it because it's not fair. They're not allowed to defend themselves and there should be more dead Jews. That's exactly the thought process there. Can you imagine saying that? But this is, it is disgusting. So let's, where were we? Um, uh, for Hebrews 4.3, the law of commandments and the ordinances. Um, yeah, I'm going to read that again because I don't know if I read it at all. In abolishing the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, Jesus has created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Um, oh, we're in, you did 2.16, didn't you? Okay, so we're in 2.16. I'm sorry, I went back to 2.15 because I couldn't remember where we were. Okay, the one new man of verse 15 precedes the thought of reconciliation, which is given in verse 16. In the order of Paul's statement, but actually the reconciliation comes first. Thus, the new man is created. Now, can everybody see that? The one new man of verse 15 precedes the thought of reconciliation in Paul's writings, which is given in verse 16 in the order of what Paul wrote it out. But the reconciliation comes first. Okay, thus the new man is created. The verb from which the word reconcile comes from is apokatalaso. It is used only here and in Colossians 1.20 and in 1.22. It means more than bringing about conciliation, but reconciliation. In other words, there was once unity, but that was lost. Now in Christ and through his cross, there is harmony once again. As Vincent's Word Studies notes, this brings out the profound idea which so especially characterizes these epistles of a primeval unity of all created being in Christ, marred and broken by sin and restored by his manifestation in human flesh. Everything was broken down, everything, and Christ has brought it all back into harmony. Now, we don't see it yet, but it is done. Hey, how you doing there? What's up? What's this? Wow. Is, it, is this uh, just, just because you're a nice guy? Yes. Thank you. Wow. Hey, we got some free, free pizza. Thank you. Very nice of you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great night. Say hi to that beauty for us. All right. Yeah. That was very nice. Wow. I did not buy that. I was just, I'm surprised to see that. What a nice guy. You, you Make sure you go down there sometimes and buy pizza from him because, you know, I'm sure it's going to be a long summer. What's that? Oh, I gave him some paperwork just a week ago and said, and I said, this is being a sermon. And so, you know, I don't directly invite anybody to the church. I never do because then it becomes about me. And I don't want them to think that, well, yeah, you're more than welcome to invite him anytime. Okay, but I never invite anybody directly. I'll beat around the bush all day long. But if I do, then it's, you know, I want you to come and see me preach, and I'm not going to do that. So, yeah, I don't want to pressure people. But you're more than welcome to pressure anybody you want. That's fine. Okay, so where were we? Um, okay, he, Vincent's Word Studies, we got that. And then the pulpit commentary shows this thought in a marvelous way, building on what Vincent said. They said, if Christ had only come to proclaim God's friendship towards sinners, why should he have suffered on the cross? The cross as a mere pulpit is hideous. As an altar, it is glorious. In other words, God didn't just proclaim reconciliation to fallen man as with a trumpet, but as an offering. In the crucified body of Christ, the enmity that has existed has ended. Yeah, it needs to be remembered that this enmity is speaking first and foremost of that which existed between Jew and Gentile. 
It is true that the cross does this between God and man, and this will be noted in the coming verse in exactly this context. But it was the Jew, the Jew who had access to God through the temple worship. Now the cross of Christ offers it to anyone, to all people. The middle wall of separation no longer stands between Jew and Gentile. The entity which existed is put to death. Okay, life application. Do you have a secret prejudice or bias against a person of a certain color or national heritage? If so, you are not seeing that person as God does. All people are descended from one man, Adam. Where is that recorded in the Bible? Well, no, no, no. I'm talking about where it explicitly Romans, states. Uh, Romans 5. No, I'm thinking, well, it might say Romans 5. I'm thinking of Acts chapter 17, 26 through 28, where he says, we are all one blood. Okay, let me take you there just so you can remember that. That's he. I, I'm sure it, it does say that in Romans as well. You are right, Burke. So I'm going to give you a, a, a. But I was thinking you weren't reading my mind, so that's kind of unacceptable. Um, here's what it says in 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. One blood means one man. Okay. So um, he has made from one every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. He created Adam and Eve, and from Adam and Eve, I don't care what any evolutionist tells you, we all derive from one group of people. One group, of, one, one couple of people, Adam and Eve, okay? So, um, where were we? Um, you're not seeing that person as God does. All people are descended from one man, Adam. Thus, all are related. Now, in Christ, there is even more reason to not have enmity towards such a person. If they are in Christ, they are truly one with you in Christ as well. So put away your prejudices and see your fellow Christians as true brothers in the Lord. Okay, what do we got here? We got 15 minutes, so we'll do another one. 217. Okay, and that's almost identical, so we're just going to let that one go. The word he here is speaking of Christ Jesus. And yet, it cannot be said that Christ preached peace directly to the Gentiles represented here by the Ephesians. He has ascended to the Father by this time. And so we see the oneness of God hinted at in the Trinity. It is the Holy Spirit who transmitted the message and continues to do so throughout the world. After Christ's ascension, Jesus even spoke of this to the disciples concerning his peace, which is in John 14. Let me take you there. And we were looking at that earlier, and we'll look at it again. John 14, and it says in verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you, bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let your heart not be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Okay, so it says here in this verse that Christ preached to those who were near and to those who were far away. And yet Christ didn't actually preach to the Ephesians. And so what's it talking about? It's speaking that Christ is speaking through the Spirit that the Father sends in his name. Okay? So, therefore, though it is the Holy Spirit who is directly speaking, 
it is still in Christ Jesus' name that he does so. Understanding this, we can see that he came, Jesus, and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near. The word peace is irini. It properly means wholeness. For example, when all essential parts are joined together. Peace, God's gift of wholeness. In other words, the peace here speaks of our being reconciled to God. There's no longer a state of enmity between the two parties. Instead, there is peace. Those who are far off, obviously, we've seen this already, are speaking of the Gentiles. Those who are near is speaking of the Jews. That's a quote from Isaiah 57. We've already been in Isaiah 57 twice, and I think this is one of the verses that I read earlier, but we'll read it again. It's Isaiah 57, verse 19. And let's see here. Sticky, sticky pages, 55, 56, 57, there it is, 57 and verse 19. It says, I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. I haven't read that one yet. Okay, a few things are of interest in this. One is that the Gentiles are mentioned first. This points to the scope of the peace, which has come through Christ. The number of Gentiles far exceeds that of Jews. What have you got on your mind, Burke? Well, he's looking at me with this face, and so it means... 14, 18, he says, uh, I will not leave you orphans, that Jesus is speaking. Right. And I will come to you. So he's saying he and the Spirit are that, one. There, so that's right. What the Spirit yeah. and Christ are one. I will come to you. And so, it, once again, the oneness of God in the sense of the Trinity. Good. Very good. Okay. The number of Gentiles far exceeds that of Jews, and so it's speaking of scope because the Gentiles are mentioned first. Secondly, the fact that peace was preached to the Jews signifies that until the work of Christ was complete, the enmity between God and Jew still existed. The work of Christ was anticipated in the rituals of Israel, but the peace truly only came when that which was anticipated was fully accomplished. Everybody see that? He came to the Jew. And he preached peace to the Jew. And that means that there was actually a state of enmity between the two, which they didn't realize existed. The Old Testament seems to show you that there's a state of peace between Israel, and, but there's not. Because the rest of the Old Testament goes on to show you that they're being exiled, they're being punished, etc. He had to preach peace to the Jew and to the Gentile. Okay, And unfortunately, the Jew, for the most part, rejected it. Some Jews accepted it. And for the most part of the world, we have rejected it. You know, I mean, if you take the number of Christians, born-again Christians in the world, it's a small percentage of the entire whole. Okay, so there you go. Peace is being preached to everybody, Jew and Gentile. You had something? No. Okay. Um, but the peace truly only came when that which was anticipated was fully accomplished. The repetition of the word peace toward both Jew and Gentile shows this to be true. This peace is not only something realized between Jew and Gentile, as we saw in verses 11 and 12, but it is also peace between each category and a third party, meaning God. Life application, yeah, we got time for another one after this. Five verses today. People want to believe that they are at peace with God through their good attitude, charities, and so on. This is a lie. The only way to have peace with God is through accepting the work of Jesus Christ as Lord. There is no other way. The most moral, decent, and giving person in human history 
is no closer to God without Jesus than the greatest sinner of all. Everybody is separated from God eternally, infinitely. Only Christ, only Christ can bring the peace we need, so spread the word. Okay, speaking of spreading the word, I have a note here, get tracks, because Caitlin asked me to send her some tracks, which I will do before I leave. I've got to get those. But um, the point for you is that we have more tracks. I just got in a whole shipment of them. I got in a box this big, and I stamped them, took four or five days eating dinner and stamping and watching TV at the same time, and they're all stamped, and so we got plenty, and we got more in reserve. So when those are gone, we'll order more. Okay? Hint, hint, hint. Okay. 218. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Okay, good stuff. This is one of the Trinitarian verses found in Paul's writings. Here we have the work of Christ, which results in our being conducted by the Spirit into the presence of the Father. Access to the Father is the subject of this verse. There is an emphatic structure in the sentence. Charles Ellicott says, Through him we have the access both of us in one spirit to the Father. It is through the work of Christ that both Jew and Gentile are granted this access. In reception of his work, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and thus the access becomes assured. The word for access here is prosagogi. I'm sorry. Yeah, I said that right the first time. Prosagogi. It means to come towards near have access, approach, with intimate face-to-face interaction. And then it says, note the prefix pros. All three occasions of prosagogi, interactive access, refer to having audience direct access with God. That's uh, J.B. Lightfoot. Okay, so a little technical, but that's what the word means. We have access completely and unfettered. The word is a technical one which gives the idea of being conducted into the presence of royalty. When this occurs, it is through a trusted officer of that court. In this case, it is the Holy Spirit who testifies that this one is mine. He has received the work of Christ and is now allowed full and unfettered access. Wonderful stuff. Thank you, Lord. This concept fully supports the words of Jesus in John 14, 6. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Okay, he is the one way of gaining and obtaining access, and there is no other way. Through his work, we are granted this right. Life application, if you are in a slump and feel that God has left you, come back to the book of Ephesians and read what Christ has done for you. In your reception of him and in his work, you are sealed with the Spirit. He is the Spirit of promise. You are granted full access to the throne of grace. Lift yourself up and press on with the full assurance that you were, are, and will continue to be accepted by him. What a wonderful thought. Jesus is so good. Um, We've got, the next one's going to be, no, we're going to skip, we're going to stop there, just because we do have pizza, and uh, I could probably finish the next one, but I don't want to, because I want to make sure people get some free pizza. That was way nice of him. Holy mackerel. Wow. Yeah, make sure you go down there. I'm sure the summer is going to be long and stressful for them, just like it is for everybody else in Sarasota. You know, all the tourists leave, and this place is a ghost town, and, you know, people need to uh, continue to pay their bills with very little, uh, very little uh, 
traffic. That's right. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful book of Ephesians. Oh, it's just, it's so marvelous to get into these words and to just receive the comfort and assurance that they give us. Christ died for our sins. He is our propitiation. He's our way of access to you. He's the one that makes things right with you. And then the Holy Spirit has sealed us. We have a guarantee. And there's nothing we need to do beyond that except just to live our lives out in your presence, hopefully honoring you every step of the way. But we know that when we fail you, we are not being imputed sin. And we thank you for that because we we all fail you often. So help us to uh, live our lives for you properly and help us to get this message out to others that desperately need to hear it. We thank you for the chance to come into your presence today. And we pray that uh, what was said is proper. And if there's anything incorrect, please alert the people that heard this message to have that deleted from their uh, their uh, main programming system. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I see my mom didn't show up. Very lazy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, here we go.